SOAS Radio. Hello, you're listening to SOAS Radio. I'm Fred. And I'm Almira. And welcome to Professor Playlist. For this series, we've lured SOAS academics out of their classes and into the studio to tell us more about themselves through five of their most loved tracks. In this episode, Fred chats with Dr. Casper Melville, who walks us through five of his favorite records, and how they informed his research and chapters in his upcoming book, It's a London Thing, How Rare Groove, Acid House, and Jungle Remap the City. Let's have a listen to their conversation. I'm joined today by Dr. Casper Melville, lecturer in global creative and cultural industries. Casper has been here since 2013, before which he's worked as a music journalist, radio presenter, DJ, and editor of New Humanist magazine. Casper, it's a pleasure to have you here today. So with your experience as a music journalist and a DJ, how did you go about choosing these tracks? Well, I tried to um, match some tracks to particular, you know, phases of my research or particular things that I've written about. It's always fun. I mean, I I, you know, I grew up listening to Desert Island Discs and I perpetually am organising in my mind in case anyone ever asked me, what are the eight records that define my life? But these um, these may well be in some way feature on the, on the list of my favourite records, but I've really chosen them to try and elucidate elements of my research. What was your background growing up in South London like? Well, I was a sort of typical product of the urban middle classes. You know, we lived in a quite a nice house in a very sort of mixed area of South London. Whereabouts was that? In Stockwell. I grew up in Stockwell, which is a short walk from Brixton. It's on the Victoria Line. I went to school in Pimlico in a large state school. So, you know, I'm a product of multicultural London of the 1970s and 80s, with all of that implies both the great positivity of that and, and the great pressure that London was under at the time in terms of racist violence and the riot that happened obviously in, in 1981 and 1985 and the terrible economic situation of the 1980s which was made worse by having Margaret Thatcher as the Prime Minister. So I had that kind of very urban upbringing uh, where you have to learn how to live with difference in the city. And when did you come into contact with uh, record stores or when did you start collecting records? It was through school. How old were you? Uh, well, then? secondary school we're talking here. So I, I went to Pimlico until the sixth form and then I went to a school in North London called William Ellis and you know, I was turned on to music by kind of the musical cultures of the school. So that's where I first heard reggae and then and punk at the same time, obviously, in the late 70s, and then funk and soul in the 80s. So how did you discover this uh, first track you're going to play for us today? And this is music introduced to me via the reggae sound system culture within which I lived or around which I lived. I was never, you know, part of a sound system. And I didn't really, as a young kind of white middle class boy, I didn't necessarily have access to the, the blues parties and sound systems around me in Brixton and Stockwell and all over the place. But but I could hear it. I heard the music and my best friend's older brother, who was a Rastafarian, uh, but he was also really into punk. We used to hang out in the basement of their parents' house where the, both of the brothers lived. And I was exposed to all of the wonderful late 70s reggae, Burning Spear and Bob Marley and Mighty Diamonds, and also to punk rock. So a lot of my musical education happened in this dingy, smoke-filled basement. And this track in particular, I loved it at the time. And having been kind of inculcated in the smoking culture which accompanies reggae music, which, uh, you know, is an important bonding process around the music, the lyrics of this song particularly struck me because it's partly about smoking weed and things like that. Uh, it was only later in researching around this music that I discovered what the song's really about. And it led me to a deeper understanding of the relationship between Jamaica and the UK in relation to the exchange of understanding and knowledge about reggae. So this is uh, Hard Times by Pablo Gad. Mm-hmm. 
That was uh, Hard Times by Pablo Gad. Come a long way from uh, your friend's basement, uh, perhaps uh, lit the spark uh, that brought you to some of the work you're doing now. You're a researcher uh, with the Bass Culture Project. Could you tell me a little more about that? Yeah, I mean, I chose that song to illustrate the Bass Culture Project. So I'm working as a researcher on a big AHRC-funded project run by Michael Riley at the University of Westminster, which is an investigation of the impact of Jamaican music and culture on British culture, you know, over 60 years. It's the 70-year anniversary of the Windrush this year and 50 years since the invention of the word reggae. How was that uh, word invented? Well, it's an interesting question. It appears on a, I think it's a Toots and the Maytals single from uh, 1968. They spell it differently. It's like R-A-Y-G-A-Y or something like that. It's a kind of, I think it's some kind of Kingston slang, which then sort of hardens in the way that is true of nearly all musical genres. It's almost impossible to nail the moment at which they're named, but the name emerges. What that illustrates in terms of my research, I've been, you know, had the privilege really of working on this project where I've had a chance to interview some of the really important people particularly in sound system culture. I've interviewed Dennis Bavell, the great dub producer, Linton Quasi Johnson. I was involved in interviewing Lloyd Coxon, who's got the champion sound of the UK for 15 years in a row. Asher Senator, who's a chatter with uh, the Saxon sound system and worked with Smiley Culture. The reason I chose that track is because I hadn't realised when I fell in love with this, with, with reggae in general and this track in particular in the early 80s, the great reciprocity between Jamaica and the UK in terms of the market, in terms of the development of reggae really that the market for Scar in the UK after Millie Small's My Boy Lollipop stimulated the growth of the Jamaican domestic music economy. And it was always reciprocal. The music was being brought here and sold here and danced to here and made here. And the reason why the Pablo Gad track is good for that is because on the one hand, it exemplifies reggae's ability to talk about social situations, not just bunging weed in a Rizla, but hard times, struggle, which evidently was the case in the UK at the time. But actually, if you dig a bit deeper, you realise now Pablo Gad is a Jamaican. He's, making, he's recording the tune in London. He's actually addressing the London reggae audience. And he's saying, if you think you've got it hard here, you need to think about what it's like in Kingston because actually people are suffering much worse in Kingston. You know, they've got no shoes on their feet. They've got no food to eat. So it's really part of an ongoing diasporic conversation which is happening between Jamaica and London where you have people going back and forth, music going back and forth, and the audience is being addressed, the UK audience is being addressed in the, the idiom of, of reggae. And that's what our research has really shown is that it's not just the product of Jamaica, although Jamaica obviously is the home and the origin. It's really a reciprocal, dynamic relationship between dispersed audiences, where London in particular, the UK, especially through the development of its sound systems. Could you possibly explain to some of our listeners that aren't familiar with sound system culture what it centers around? Yeah, I mean, it's in one sense, it's really simple. I mean, a sound system is a massive hi-fi, right? One of these remarkable developments that you get from relatively impoverished communities who make the most of what they have or don't have. So it's invented in Jamaica. And the idea is, if you don't have a nightclub, you can make your own form of culture, your own form of entertainment by taking a simple record player and supersizing it, building bigger and bigger speakers to project the sound louder and louder. And it's the, really the obsession with the bass, with that tone. Partly that was it was there because sound systems were playing outside and they needed to project the sound very strongly being outdoors. Partly it was because these sound systems developed in a competitive environment. They were competing for audiences. And so they built this very rich competitive culture where the size and, and quality of the sound was an important component of whether you could draw an audience that combined with who had the fresh music the so-called dub plates or specials so it was the sound systems were basically providing an alternative structure of nightclubs and radio because that music wasn't played on the radio in the uk so it built an alternative system 
in the UK. I mean, we're talking about thousands of sound systems identified with areas from small little things made by 16-year-old kids under the instruction of their cousins, uncles, fathers who knew how to do this sort of thing to really mega sounds and obviously places like Notting Hill Carnival as a showcase for the sounds and their, their might. And in many ways, it's the model for club culture in general. And it is a Jamaican idea, which was very influential in the development of British musical culture as well. So what are we going to hear next? So next we're going from Jamaica and the UK sound system. We're going to the US and this is uh, Larry Young's Fuel and a track called Turn Off the Lights. by Larry Young. Tell us a little bit about that track. Well, I chose that to illustrate one of my sort of major research interests. I've been writing a book, which I'm close to finishing, I hope, about London club culture of the 80s and 90s. And this tune exemplifies the earlier period or the mid-80s mid period, which is widely described as either the rare groove scene or the warehouse party scene. So you get a, you get a kind of coming together of, of several different things. One is a a particular form of doing nightclubbing. We've talked about the sound system and it's based on the sound system model, which is that a club is anywhere where you can have a sound system. That's all you really need to make a club. Uh, you don't even need walls. So you can do it anywhere. And the situation, the economic situation and the sort of urban situation in the middle of the 1980s was with deindustrialization and the collapse of manufacturing and the collapse of Docklands and a lot of the light industry and and globalization starting to outsource. They had a lot of empty space in London, not like it is now. Lots of the places that we are familiar with now in London, you know, have been done over and rebuilt. But actually at that time, even quite central London locations, and in particular along the river east of um, the South Bank, down towards the industrial docklands, uh, was empty space. And it was space that people were starting to use 
to make their own nightclubs. And the people who were doing it, many of them came out of the sound system scene. They either had sound systems themselves, uh, reggae sound systems themselves, or they had brothers or uncles who had them, and they grew up within it. But they were ambitious to step outside or move beyond the reggae scene, strictly speaking, and to evolve in a different direction and it was a direction which was more open in certain ways it was more accessible to a white audience it was more its aspiration was multicultural it really it wasn't explicitly political it wasn't like rock against racism and it wasn't obviously about politics but it had a political dimension which was in the situation where it was difficult to mix racially for all kinds of reasons including sus including uh, the the door quotas on london clubs which prevented access for especially for black men and the relatively hidden nature of reggae sound systems which were predominantly black race mixing socially wasn't that common you know many black people i knew growing up didn't go to the pub because the pub was was alien territory and often racist territory so this was the creation of a different kind of space in what was basically the carcass of a certain kind of imperial manufacturing power. And installed in that would be big sound systems, some of which were actually reggae sound systems, but repurposed to play a new kind of music. And that new kind of music is what has become known as rare groove. And that's an example of what you just heard. So that, that great track by Larry Young's Fuel, a strange mix of funk, which is derives from reggae there's a deep bass uh, a breakbeat drums there's soulful vocals and then this kind of almost abstract jazz keyboard electronic mayhem played by larry young himself on a variety of synthesizers and moogs and things like that kind of fit that tone the thing to remember here is that this is music from 1975 recorded in america which was wasn't a hit was relatively unknown uh, and uncared about in america when it was produced you know i bought the record secondhand cheaply it had been clearly discarded by someone but 10 years later in london djs like norman jay jazzy b from soul to soul and many others you know not only black took this music which they themselves knew and maybe had even already bought and had in the 70s and they played it for a new audience to whom it was completely unfamiliar and it's dance music but it's deep dance music as you can hear from that track it's quite slow really bassy and it's kind of both sinister and uplifting at the same time and for me it exemplifies i used to go to jazzy b's club at the africa center in covent garden it wasn't strictly a warehouse party it wasn't an illegal venue but it was a it wasn't a purpose-built club and that tune when they dropped it it would just turn the place out and it was thrilling because me and many people like me had no idea of the riches of the american recorded music of the 70s which had been largely forgotten and it was unknown so could you tell me a little bit about the nexus behind uh, the rare groove scene? So you mentioned radio stations, clubs, I'm guessing maybe import, U.S. import record shops. How did you find out about these parties? How did you find yourself? Yeah, well, there was a network of really good record shops in London that disseminated import records. I mean, and there had been clubs running all the way back to, you know, Crackers, which started in the mid 70s in, in Soho, which which specialised in playing import American records, and that there were shops there to supply that market. Uh, it was a somewhat closed scene in one sense. It was kind of an expertise scene. You kind of needed to be in the know. Once you once they started doing these warehouse parties, you could find out about them. It was a kind of extended network. Remember, young people, no internet, no mobile phones, none of this being talked about on the legitimate media. What we did have was pirate radio. And the period of Rare Groove coincides with the launch of KISS FM in London in 1985. Norman Jay, who was one of the key DJs, was part of that 
setting that up and all of the best rare groove djs were on kiss and through kiss they sent covert messages about upcoming parties they also did handmade flyers i myself spent many an hour standing outside clubs handing out flyers so what would happen was clubs that would play the certain kind of music you would go and give flyers out to them and then that would spin out so in a way it was a kind of hidden thing lots of people completely unaware of it there wasn't an aspiration for everyone to come because you know everyone in that day and age you know there were lots of people we were trying to avoid we didn't want racists coming down we didn't want troublemakers or gangsters it was a very much based on some political principles of unity collaboration joy finding a little space within what was a fairly grim uh, environment unregulated you know we didn't we wanted to be away from the police we wanted to be away from bouncers we wanted to be away from beard up you know geezers on a saturday night trying to sort of pick up girls and have bar fights it was very much music and our our obsession and mutual love and appreciation of this music was really at the center of it and if you listen to what the music's saying it's full of messages of you know it, it tells you about grim social situations but it also gives you resources for coming together and feeling joyful and feeling uh, liberated what are we going to hear next something that will make us feel joyful liberated oh i think and so well, and i think something which combines those two this isn't strictly speaking a dance tune although i like to dance to it this is almost this is like a symphony uh this is terry callier's dancing girl Callier with Dancing Girl. So, Casper, you've written about this track in particular. Yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, one of the great things about being an academic is that you can write about things that you have loved and cared about for a long time. This is a piece of music which emerges, I think it's probably 1972, from a, a series of albums that that Callier made with the um, Cadet label, which were flops in America. They're beautiful albums, but they didn't do well, partly because 
musically he didn't fit neatly into any category he's a he's a black soul singer but he sounds folky he plays an acoustic guitar uh, there's the strings in it uh there's funk in it there's jazz in it and and in in dancing girl he tells a story it's like a like a little movie about situations from black american life including uh, uh charlie parker practicing his saxophone in a in a hotel room but also taking smack down the road is a is a, is a, a young girl who's been forced into prostitution you know so it's there's it's grim tales of the ghetto but it's also characterizing music as being uh, a source of possible escape and, and and possible sort of um how to make a new world and this track in particular is reminiscent of the fact that the rare groove scene gave birth in london to the acid jazz scene which was a kind of subset of the rare groove scene where a certain kind of moddy sensibility started picking up records which weren't explicitly dance floor oriented but were rediscovering kind of beautiful music uh, with a jazzy edge and terry callier who by this point had completely given up music and was a computer programmer in chicago was contacted by Eddie Piller, who ran the Acid Jazz label in in the mid '80s, uh, who said, "You know, why don't you come and perform your music in England? You've got loads of fans." And he didn't believe it, but he did. He was eventually persuaded to come, and he played a show here. And you know, he played in front of an audience who knew all his music and sang it back to him. And he was so overwhelmed, you know, he was in tears. It was a kind of a long belated recognition, which he had never received in the United States, of beauty of his, his, his work. As a music journalist, it wasn't easy always to... I mean, I interviewed Terry Callier as a music journalist, and that was great, but it's not wasn't always easy to extemporise, to talk about the importance of music in relation to, you know, culture and society at a deeper level. So as an academic, I do get a chance to do that. And I did write... I, I wrote a piece which was included in the collection edited by my colleagues Rachel Harris and Rowan Pease put out by the SOAS music department called Pieces of the Musical World and it was a nice project because it's kind of a textbook and the idea was just choose one track explain its context its social context the context of its production and then actually sort of break it down into and I'm not a musicologist so I didn't break it down into notes I broke it down into kind of movements as you can hear from that song it's it comes in certain set of movements which reference almost the entire history of African-American music from New Orleans jazz all the way to funk um, and, and you know, blues and soul in between. So uh, I wrote a piece which is called The Strange Roots, which is just partly about that track, partly about what could account for the popularity of that music made in the early 70s in, in, in Chicago to, you know, London of the 1980s. And I make connections between the, the racial situation and the, the kind of, uh, you know, the urban pressure which was driving people towards a particular kind of artistic expression. But I also got a chance to reflect on how, you know, that music came into my life because I tell a story in that, which is just something that's always kind of stayed in my mind. I, I went to California to university in, in 1989. I had a year abroad and I was in Santa Cruz in 1989 and there was a big earthquake uh, in San Francisco. You know, a freeway collapsed and quite a lot of people died. In Santa Cruz, the, the record store in town fell down and because of that, it was called Logos. Because of that, they opened up their warehouse. They had this huge warehouse right by the railway tracks and they just opened it up as the new store and they put everything on sale. So I could suddenly go in there. We were, there were tens of thousands of records and everything was like three, four dollars. So that was my chance to really indulge my, you know, vinophilia, I suppose you call it. And it was during that bending sprees in there that I picked up the Terry Callier, which I had heard on a tape which originated in the acid, with an acid jazz DJ. So it, I was familiar with it. The fact that the record fell into my hands was all because of that earthquake, weirdly. 
often the record finds you and uh, not the other way around. Well, maybe so, yeah. And then, and I've hung on to it, and and I was only the last person to own the record. I don't know who had it before me, but so in all those ways, I I feel so happy to have been able to write about it, and also because Terry Callier was just like a wonderful man who got a second chance. You know, having been rediscovered by Acid Jazz, he restarted his musical career. He made several more albums. Uh, I think he was nominated for a Grammy for timepiece you know he he finally got some of the recognition that he had deserved and looked like he was never going to get especially in america because america often doesn't appreciate what it's got you mentioned that earthquake in 1989 our next track is from 1988 it's joe smooth with the promised land smooth with the promised land tell us now we've moved from rare groove yeah this track kind of represents what was a really significant cleavage in club culture i mean arguably rare groove had run its course you know rare groove kind of emerges in 1984 then 85 86 87 it is the dominant musical genre in london because of warehouse parties also you know clubs places like the the wag club and many others everyone was playing rare groove but then something happened and uh, it happened just before I moved to America, actually. And I wasn't, you know, and it did blow me away like it did everyone else. And really, I'm talking about the arrival of Acid House here. In some ways, Joe Smooth is not a good example of Acid House because it's actually rather a traditional Chicago house tune. It's a bit slower. It's not as crazy as early Acid House and doesn't have the acid machine on it. For other reasons, it's a good example. So what happened was this music started arriving from mainly from Chicago and Detroit and a bit from New York. British DJs, many of whom who had been playing rare groove and funk and soul, thinking of um, Danny Rampling and Paul Oakenfold and Nicky Holloway. 
they all went to Ibiza. I think it was 1987 for Paul Oakenfold's birthday. And when they were in Ibiza, they heard DJ Alfredo play at a club called Amnesia. And Alfredo had a very eclectic music policy. He was a bit of a 60s hippie, really. And, and Ibiza is a bit of a hippie kind of island. And so he was playing rock music. He was playing uh, Spanish folk music, Euro disco, and this new music that was coming from Chicago, this new house music, technical, thumping uh, rhythm not like funk, not like jazz, not really like reggae. And he was mixing it all together. And also really importantly, his crowd started to take ecstasy, which was available in Ibiza and not really in England. And these guys were sort of converted to this new idea about clubbing almost overnight and came back. And I mean, Oakenfold was a, was a hip hop DJ. He had a hip hop club. After hours in this hip hop club that he had in Streatham, he started playing this acid house, playing around with this eclectic idea, filling the room with smoke, smoke machines, flashing strobe lights and playing this house music and and ecstasy started to come into the scene. And it really just shifted everything. Within a year, the acid house model kind of swept through London club culture and blew away Rare Groove. Many Red Groovers weren't happy about it and they tried to like launch a counter-offensive where they said, you know, no, no repetitive beats or, you know, only... There was one club famously called Slow Motion that decided they wouldn't have any music faster than 80 BPMs. And, you know, you could do that because there was loads of really good bits slower, like the origins of R&B. There was great hip-hop. There was Eric B and Rakim. There was Tribe Called Quest. There was Erica Badu was coming, that, that kind of thing. But for the Ravers, you know, it was a new form of clubbing. Ecstasy made a real difference because it lowered people's social inhibitions. It got, in particular, it got white men onto the dance floor. You know, black men had been dancing in, in, in reggae raves for a long time, but this got your white British lad onto the dance floor, moving around, hugging his friend. It, was, it created this joyful collective atmosphere. And the music that went with it was strange and rather wonderful and freaky. So I've got a chapter of my book about Acid House and how it happened and the various kind of conflicts around it and also what, what it was made of. And it transpires that Joe Smooth, who's like a Chicago singer and producer, had been on a tour with um, Farley Jack Master Funk, who had this great hit in 1987, I think, Love Can't Turn Around. Based on Isaac Hayes. I, I Can't Turn Around. Yeah. yeah, it was a reworking of that with um, with this crazy, very camp singer called Daryl Pandy. And they came to London on a tour. In fact, they did a European tour of clubs, but they did come to London. And I saw Daryl Pandy at the Soul to Soul club, actually, and he did a PA. You know, he came and sang and he was in like a sparkly outfit. It was really crazy and hilarious. And we liked it. You know, the Rare Groovers liked it. We didn't reject it. But apparently Joe Smooth was on that trip and having experienced this new forms of clubbing that he saw, I think particularly in London, although possibly across Europe, you know, multicultural, open-minded, very different to the Chicago, which is racially segregated, basically. When he got back, he wrote Promised Land and he wrote, you know, and he, he embedded this idea of, you know, brothers and sisters, one day we can all be free, a very a sort of call for pan-racial unity. And it very rapidly became a sort of acid house anthem, particularly at... Um, yeah, at Shum, which is was Danny Rampling's Acid House Club, which is like the model of all Acid House Clubs, really. And everyone listened to it. And when it was played to an ecstasy full crowd, you know, everyone went into a kind of hysterical kind of outburst of love and unity and hugged. And it was just very, it was very indicative of that period. I mean, I, I did, I didn't go to Shum myself, but I did go to the Clink Street raves where Acid House was also gestated. And then Oakenfold's club at Heaven, which was called Spectrum. And, you know, it was similar. It was a very, a real moment of optimism but it, it was a kind of a combination of optimism and a kind of uh, willful kind of blotting out of the real world 
you know, because of because it was drug related, very dance oriented, very sweaty. I mean, I found myself sometimes in a club, you know, without a shirt on. I mean, it was looking back on it, I feel mortified. But at the time, it seemed appropriate. And, uh, you know, Joe Smooth captured that at the heart of Acid House, no matter that we believe that it is relate, you know, that it's kind of the creation of these white DJs, which it was, is still the tradition of black music. It's still about a thumping bass and, and beat rhythm. Uh, and it's a reconceptualization of kind of soul gospel in an, and, and technology in a new form, which gripped the nation, you know, between 88 and about 1992, 93. In a much larger extent than it did in the US, I guess, with these clubs like The Warehouse. and Back to the, what we said about Terry Callier, America not recognizing what it's got. Because of that, those people created their own forms of culture, very strong, but somewhat hidden away. We're talking about Paradise Garage, The Warehouse. We're talking about uh, David Mancuso's Loft in New York. You know, these are where club culture was created but it was only it was for a very small group of marginalized people and it did not spread even you know down the street you know white americans generally showed no interest in it they didn't hear it they didn't go there it wasn't on the radio disco was and disco was the was the front face of that which very rapidly went from being ignored to being massively commodified to it being the bgs who were symbolic of disco to it burning out and what happened was when it burnt out it disappeared from the record company agendas and they went to New Wave and all this stuff. And it went underground. And when it went underground, people like Frankie Knuckles and Larry Levan invented house music. And then people in, in Detroit who were getting very technical were inventing techno at the same time, which was another take on te- technology for, and soul music together. But none of that mattered to America until it came to the UK we moulded it into a club culture and then sold it back to America as EDM. And uh, that brings us to our next and final track. What are we going to hear? This one, which kind of, to me, brings together so many different sort of streams of the music that I love and am fascinated by. So this is It's Alright, I Feel It by, um, by New Eureka Soul, featuring the vocalist Jocelyn Brown. But this is the Ronnie Size mix. <laughs>
New Yorkian soul with Jocelyn Brown on vocals. It's all right, I feel it. That's the Ronnie Size remix off the 1997 12-inch uh, released in the UK, which ties in nicely to what you just said. Uh, Why did you decide to end on this one? Yeah, well, this just pulls together a lot of themes for me. One is the great influence of New York and Soul, you know, who are Louis Vega and Kenny Dope Gonzalez. You know, you've got a hip-hop DJ and a kind of Hispanic disco DJ working together. This exemplifies the influence on all of club culture of, you know, the, the, the great New York clubs and the coming together of sort of Latino-flavoured disco and hip-hop. And then you've got Jocelyn Brown, who's a great singer, who kind of, her, her career straddles all the way from kind of like soul funk of the mid-70s all the way through to the kind of evolution of R&B, you know, the strongly vocal, strongly hip-hop influenced American popular music of the late 80s and early 90s. But then you've got the remix by Ronnie Size, and this exemplifies the emergence of what was first called Jungle and then drum and bass in the UK. And we're talking about the period around, I mean, it, it, people argue about that. Arguably the first jungle tune or jungle-ish tune was We Are I.E. by Lenny D. Ice, which was actually made in 1989. So it's almost happening at the, exactly the same time as, as Rave. Rave is what is where Acid House goes. But what you get in the early 1990s is the fusing of funk, jazz funk, reggae in terms of the weight of the bass and house music and rave music and all of those in that cocktail jungle emerges and jungle in some sense is the kind of revenge of reggae it's kind of reggae reclaiming its central position in dance music culture by supplanting the kind of four to the floor uh, disco beat which is underpinning house music with break beats and bass lines uh, you've got a whole set of, of black producers mainly with roots in sound system culture who have come along and they kind of create this new musical form it's happening in London, but it's also happening in Bristol, which has a very strong sound system scene. So Ronnie Size is from Bristol, and he comes out of that scene. Massive Attack also come out of that scene, where they have strong sound system tradition, but they're also ravers. And that kind of is the prominent music of the mid to late 90s. In And, and in my book, this is it's the kind of the third part of the puzzle. You know, the first one being Rare Groove, the second one, Acid House, and the third one, Jungle. I'm just selecting a kind of time period, which, you know, obviously there's continuities before and after and there are other things going on but I've just chosen these as exemplary of particular kinds of musical hybrids which also had multicultural audiences and multicultural production and celebrated a certain kind of DIY aesthetic which does not derive from punk although punk usually gets the credit for inventing do-it-yourself culture because it has origins that go way back into sound system culture for those people who had to do it for themselves because, you know, no one was going to do it for them or even allow them into the places where it could be done. So they did it themselves. So I love that track. I mean, it's a really long track. It kind of goes up and down. It's interesting that it was released on G Giles Peterson's uh, Talking Loud label, actually. So this was the moment when, because he's kind of the king of acid jazz at the time. So it shows you that these music, which might appear to be very separate, are all deeply related. And all the DJs that we've talked about and the producers throughout this you know, a drawing from a huge kind of musical continuum which links jazz and blues and ska and reggae and disco and hip-hop and, and all of these variously described, you know, Afro-diasporic musical forms, which you can also trace elements of their structure to African practices, but they've been transformed through their travelling, through the pathways of what Paul Gilroy calls the Black Atlantic, you know, from Africa to the New World, back to Europe. In, with the kind of colonial situation that we live in and which London exemplifies and which kind of formed my musical tastes and interests and I'm still trying to, you know, figure out the value of.
Thanks for listening to our first episode of Professor Playlist with Dr. Casper Melville on SOAS Radio. Stay tuned for our next episode where we sit down with Dr. Angela Impey from the Music Department.